Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Live from the Toby Family Auditorium at the Commonwealth Club, it's a special edition of the week-to-week political roundtable. It's Thursday, March 26, 2020. Now, like all of the club's programming today, these days, actually, we are doing this completely online. Our special guest today is joining us via video conferencing technology. Our audience is watching us online. And I am here at the Commonwealth Club with a skeleton crew of audio and video experts who are making all this magic happen. In fact, we are also presenting these programs to you free. We do welcome any support you might want to send our way. Find out at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back when I was a technology journalist, I once was at a big conference and I overheard one person tell a friend, quote, you know, when you're giving a presentation, you're supposed to imagine your audience in their underwear, you know, to put you at your ease. When you present in a web seminar, they really are. Well, I hope you're fully dressed today. I'm glad you're joining us today. You can submit questions for our guest. If you're watching us on YouTube, there is a chat box near the uh, video image. Submit your questions there. I'll get them sent to me, and I'll read them off my text reader. And uh, we'll work those into our conversation today. Now... Today's guest is Deborah J. Saunders. She's the White House correspondent for the Las Vegas Review Journal. She's also a syndicated columnist. Before joining the Review Journal, she was a longtime columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle, as well as the author of its token conservative blog. She joins us from the nation's capital. Deborah, welcome back to Week to Week. Thank you for having me, John. Yes, well, we have a lot we want to cover today, and I want to get your thoughts on some of the amazing political stories that you get to cover every day from the White House. We'll get to those. But first, you self-quarantined after you came down with coronavirus symptoms. Tell us how that came about and, and what happened. Thank you. You know, I feel horrible. My nose is itchy, and I know people are going to say, oh, no, she touched her face. Sorry. <laughs> Anyway, um, so I was covering CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, where uh, Donald Trump spoke on February 29. And we learned about a week later that somebody who had who, who was not symptomatic at the time later tested positive for the coronavirus. So then the question was, well, what do you do? Well, I never got near the guy. And I knew that. So I continued to work. And um, basically, uh, about a week later, I suddenly had a fever and was short of breath in a way I'd never been before. I got in touch with my doctor. He got in touch with the ER uh, and told me to go there, which I did. I was really careful. I didn't, you know, I was really careful about everything. And uh, they said that I tested negative on influenza A and B. They gave me a chest X-ray and said I had a viral infection. So I got a letter saying, don't go to work until March 27, which is tomorrow. And I have been uh, in shutdown ever since. And the symptoms haven't evolved into anything worse? You know, I was I was tired and sick for over a week. Mm-hmm. I get better, then I get tired again. But, I, I mean, I don't know if it was coronavirus. The odds are it was not. Um, just because, I mean, we've, we've heard Dr. Deborah Burke say that a number of people in places where they were tested well over 90% who were tested, I assume because they had symptoms, didn't have it. Yeah. You know, it's frankly, this has been the most rest I've had since I started covering Donald Trump. So <laughs> we take what we can get. So you said tomorrow's the end of your, do you actually head back to uh, the White House tomorrow? Is, will that happen? So uh, I doubt I will go tomorrow because there is this, so as you know, they've really narrowed the seating chart and you don't see nearly as many people in there. Right. Things about the, the about the briefing room, it's forty nine seats, seven by seven, like California square miles, right? <laughs> <laughs> and um, well, of course, we know that there were directives to have no more than fifty people. That meant nobody standing in the aisle and everything else. And then it got down to ten. There are more than ten people there, but they've really self self distanced a lot. So what I'm going to do is I I have a a, a a rotation for one seat and every 11th day I get the seat. If somebody else passes on it, then I might get it sooner. So my first day will be uh, I, probably Monday. And there's really not much of a point to go there before because they're not exactly encouraging it. Uh, the other thing, I'll just tell you this because I think it's interesting, is what's it like to work there? Yes. Uh, now, the Las Vegas Review Journal has a bureau in the National Press Club, which is a few blocks away, three blocks away. I, I share a desk. Uh, 
with other people and it's really cramped. I remember the idea of hot desks and thinking, oh, how does anybody work like that? Well, it's pretty crowded there. In fact, people actually use the briefing room as their own offices because it's roomier. Wow. Yeah. So anyway, I'll, I'll, the next time that I know that I am on the rotation, I will be going to the White House. Well, it's always interesting to hear how these things are actually, actually done and how they work. You, you mentioned every 11 days you, you have a kind of, you get in that rotation for a seat. Are all the members of the press treated the same way like that? Or does CNN get a spot every single time? Does Fox News always have a seat or are they on the 11 day rotation and it's, it's a pool report that they're able to pull from? So CNN has its own seat. The networks have their own seats, uh, but they're having fewer people. I mean, some of these networks, uh, like there's, M- you know, NBC and MSNBC and all that. So they've really, they've pared down to one. And it, you'll notice it used to be, you'd see those crowded, the crowds on the aisles, those are gone. Um, and, you know, you have to work hard. Uh, I mean, I worked hard to get that, on that rotation. I, I put in a lot of, of time and, you know, you, you're, I show up a lot. And, uh, you know, so anyway, I'm, I'm really happy to have that every 11th day. It's a good deal. Well, great. Let's step back and talk about where you came from and how you got there. Um, let's start way back at the beginning. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Massachusetts. Okay. Born outside of Boston, Newton Wellesley Hospital. And uh, I lived in Massachusetts. I lived in Massachusetts. I lived in New York and Newport, Rhode Island. And I moved to California in 1985, where I got a job uh, working for a, a Republican consulting firm. And that's how I became a Californian. Where I, and I lived there for 24 years. Uh, you went to college at the University of Massachusetts in Boston, where you got your bachelor degree in Latin and Greek. Um, obviously, the joke has been, was that good training for dealing with Washington? <laughs> but I actually was having a thought, because you and I have talked about how we've both read Tom Holland's book, The Rubicon. And in the introduction to that book, he, he kind of rolls out the old historian's line about how, oh, you know, you're not really supposed to use history to compare today and, and you know, or to draw those kinds of lessons. It's some other sort of lesson you're supposed to get from it. And it doesn't matter to me. I always read history and, and I'm trying to make connections with the current day. What I want to get at is with fewer people, I think, today in the West learning Latin and Greek history and learning the evolution of democracy and Western civilization through that, do you think that makes them less prepared to understand how our democracy works, what the failings of our democracy are, what its strengths are? Maybe a loaded question, but what do you think? Well, let me just, uh, um, that's, I'm so glad you brought up Rome because to me, this is Rome. And as I watch, now, as you know, Donald Trump is not a big history buff. And, and uh, other presidents are, you know, they like to read a lot about their predecessors. To our knowledge, Donald Trump is not one of those people. But when I look at the fall of the Roman Republic, I see a lot of analogies with what's going on today. And let me just talk about that for a second. I'm so glad you brought this up, John. You're so good. So uh, when Caesar ended up becoming emperor, the two factions in Rome could not get anything done. All they could do was stop the other person. So you had this group of sort of the elite, the, the, the elites, uh, and then you had sort of a more plebeian, still elite group of Romans. And those were the two people who were fighting. And all they could do was use different uh, gimmicks to stop the other person from getting things done. And are we not seeing that so much today where it's, it's just the, 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 ga- the, the goal is not to, so much to get what you want is to stop the other side from getting what it wants. And it was very personal. Now, I would not compare Donald Trump to Julius Caesar, who, uh, you know, had served in the military, had gone through what the, the course is on Orem. He worked his way up, uh, to, to where, to, till, until he became a senator and eventually in a general and everything else. But, um, but I think that the, the personal vitriol is really comparable. Another comparison is kind of the, the, especially I was thinking this when we had Tom Steyer and Mike Bloomberg also in the Democratic race was, you know, at the time, Caesar with zillions of debts, but basically in the role of one of these billionaires, certainly funded by the equivalent of billionaires back then. And you would have kind of clash of the billionaires and oftentimes they both were claiming to be representing the, the people or, you know, ancient Rome, whatever. But still, it was the people they were trying to be 
obviously populist representatives of. Um, and I guess I've had that thought a number of times as I've seen, you know, Donald Trump make that connection directly with the base that is, you know, conservative, populist, and just wanting their hero there. They don't, they don't, the fact that he's a billionaire is not a turnoff to them. It's not a contradiction. And, you know, same thing on the left. Mike Bloomberg is worth, what, 50, 60 billion dollars. And yet he's out running as a Democrat uh, as, as, and trying to convince people that he, or he was running, excuse me, but trying to convince people that he would be able, you know, a better server for the people at the bottom of the, of the pile. So my observation about Trump is that he's poor person. Every poor person thinks if I were a millionaire, this is what I'd be like. And he's that guy. Now, we know people who have a lot of money and they're filled with angst and self-doubt and they rethink and they they think they overthink everything. Donald Trump is not that man. He's the rich guy who says, I want that. I take it. And that's, I think, the thing that that the Trump base loves about Trump. And they think he's one of us. Because they'd like to think, hey, if I had that kind of money, I wouldn't be hand-wringing all the time. I'd be living it up. And that's what Donald Trump does. Okay. Let's let's go back to where you we left off, which was you arrive in Washington. You, you're working for a Republican consulting group. How did you make the transition into journalism? So I went to Sacramento. Have to, so I, I go to Sacramento. And I remember thinking, gee, I'd really like to have a column someday. And I started sending out um, – opinion pieces, freelance. And I got some published and, uh, which was sort of nice. I was in the Boston Herald. I was in Sacramento magazine. I was in the Sacramento Bee, you know, and, um, I put together enough, uh, clips that when the Los Angeles, uh, daily news was looking for an editorial writer, I had enough stuff to get the job. And I said, I wanted a column with it and they kindly gave me one. So that's how I became a columnist. It was not a straight route. And but you know, and when I when I was in college, I was selling insurance. So I mean, it was not a straight path at all. But you did go, and you went from the LA paper to when did you get moved to the Chronicle? Then, so one day in 1992, I say so too much, don't I? I've got to stop that. That's a <laughs> one day in 1992. I was at my desk at the LA Daily News, and the San Francisco Chronicle called. Uh, Bill German called me and said, "Please come up," and I did, and that was that. Wow. Well, at the San Francisco Chronicle, you were there, as we said, the token conservative. You were there, their one public facing conservative writer. Um, you're also an independent conservative. I mean, you've, you've, and I've, when people do follow you on Twitter, they'll see you get heat from both the left and the right whenever you say or write something that, that one of those sides doesn't like. Has that ever bothered you? Have you ever, I mean, or do you just have a really tough skin? I mean, because people get vicious. You think? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess I have a tough skin. I mean, I've been, I've been, I mean, my attitude at this point is what are they going to call me? They haven't called me before. I've really been called every name in the book. So I, it, it really does. It, this was not always the case, but it really does roll off my back now. Well, now, now that you're writing for a Las Vegas based paper, what are the differences in your readership? I mean, do they come to you with the same complaints or issues or, I'm assuming it's maybe a, a less left-wing audience, but I don't know Vegas very well. So what, what, what kind of feedback do you get? Well, and that's a really good question. Um, as you know, Las Vegas, I mean, Nevada, is it, is it purple or, or is it blue? Yeah. Uh, I think we'll know for sure in 2020. Uh, there are people who have opinions both ways. Uh, more people think it's blue than purple. Mm-hmm. But I think that readers of newspapers tend to be older. And I can tell you that our readership is very pro-Trump, at least the people I hear from. Uh, not, not all, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it, there are a lot of, there are a lot of Trump fans. It's always amused me when I see people respond to you on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. And, you know, they're, they're just blasting you for being, you know, yet another one of these left-wing, you know, Trump haters. And it's like, you have to read, <laughs> follow more than one story that you've read, follow more than one tweet that they've read. But uh, yeah, it's kind of a shooting gallery on, on social media. Emerson said it's a luxury to be understood. <laughs> well, so you, you end up in, in Washington as a White House correspondent for the Las Vegas Review Journal. Um, and I mean, you, you get a, a, a great seat at one of the great political food fights in the world. 
what was it like when you arrived there? And what I'm getting to then is, is really, has it, was it what you expected? Well, I've never been a reporter before. I've been an editorial writer and a columnist. So this was my first stint as a reporter. And I, I, I've got to say, I started at the top. So that was interesting. I didn't, um, there are a lot of things I, I don't think I fully appreciated about reporters that I've come to learn. Just the amount of time that you spend waiting and sort of trying to dig things up. And um, I don't think anybody had any idea what to expect from this White House, John. Really no idea. A lot of, uh, by the way, this is sort of funny. I mean, a lot of people look at me and they figure, oh, I've been there for 30 years, right? I mean, look at my age. And so people are always asking me, well, what was it like when? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> so, but, um, but I've talked to other people who've covered other White Houses. And for example, I heard that uh, um, uh, Josh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm having a senior moment here, but um, Obama's press secretary, that he could, you could sit there and you knew when he would get that, get to you on the row and you could do other work. That does not happen in the in the Trump White House. People may be looking at their phones, but it's to see if there's something new that they need to know about. Yeah. Not because they're 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 busy writing another story or something. It really is different than any other White House from from what all of my colleagues who have been there before say. And as a reporter, not well, you you still do write your syndicated column. So you, mm-hmm. you're, you have a foot in both camps, but as a reporter, I mean, that's almost, it sometimes seems like more a 24 hour job, a 24 hour day. I mean, you're, you also have to kind of be ready to respond to something. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the thing about covering Donald Trump is you miss three stories every day, even if you write one or two, that there's always something going on and you just can't keep up with all of it. And I, I, I guess over time I've, I've gotten used to that, but you just, there's just so much going on. So I asked a friend and former colleague of yours uh, if she had a question she wanted me to ask you. So this is what Carla Marinucci of Political California Playbook sent me. So as one who covers Trump daily, what's your feeling about the decision of some networks, MSNBC and CNN, cutting away or even mulling, ending the broadcast of these coronavirus briefings because they complain that the president is you know, putting out misinformation? What do you think about those decisions? You know, uh I am in the bubble, so I, in certain ways, I, I feel like I'm not the best person to ask. Uh, but I'm guessing that people are going to start turning them off at some point in time. So it's probably a good business decision. I mean, Trump just, there are just times when you just wonder how we can talk so much. <laughs> <laughs> you just do. It's like, I think people at some point in time, and I mean, to me, that's always been the big question. I know how much his base loves him. Will they ever decide they've heard it enough? Yeah. And I don't know the answer to that. I've been to uh, rallies where they just, I mean, they love him. And, and, and they feel that he is the person who represents them in a world that doesn't appreciate them. So uh, will that trump everything else, pun intended? I don't know. Uh, Carla also mentioned, and this is something I've wondered every time I see kind of a contentious press conference, whether it's Trump or another president, but specifically on Trump, why don't reporters in White House briefings follow up on each other's questions when one of them kind of becomes the target of the, of the, the president? Um, I mean, is there, is there a sense that they, they kind of give each other the space and don't, don't try to follow up? Cause I remember reading about during the Nixon administration, there was a time when they, they had, there was, they had kind of like planned ahead of time that if this person gets shut down, then this person's going to ask the follow up question and, and onward. But what's that, I guess, the, the, the chemistry between and is there any cooperation between different reporters in the White House press room briefings? That's that's a great question, Carla. Thank you, Carla. <laughs> you know, I, that's a, I, I, I'd like to think about that a little bit more. But let me give you an off the top uh, answer. There are times when people do follow up and they do keep asking it again. But I think there's also an understanding of how do we play to the public? And there are a lot of people who think, oh, that's a gotcha question. Oh, that's a this or a that. And so while there are times when people are going to continue to sort of press on a certain issue, especially if it's a story of the day, there's also an understanding that people hate us. I mean, not, I don't think the Commonwealth Club audience per se, but there are people who really hate us and you have to have an understanding uh, of how that's going to work. And another thing, I don't believe in asking questions that you don't think you can get an answer to. So if someone, you know, if you're not getting an answer or you know the answer, you know, I mean, you should ask something where you think, hey, I could learn something. So uh, so so that's another factor. 
Okay. Well, take us. What, what's a typical day like for you as a, as a White House correspondent? Not not self quarantined, but you know, how early <laughs> are you up? What what is it like? Is it like being on a treadmill, or or what do you have to do? I used to say I'd go into work, write a story, and then rip it up at four o'clock and start another one. <laughs> I mean, with Trump, things are always just evolving. Um, you know, uh, they the brief the daily briefings are back, which is good because it gives you a certain kind of connection that you don't have. Uh, when they didn't have daily briefings, I would go by the White House uh, uh, every day, spend a certain amount of time there just to sort of catch up and and see what we do. Um, let me tell you what it's like to pool, which would give you a better idea. So what, I'm, I'm a member of the print pool. And what that means is that you can't have every single newspaper reporter following the president around. So you get a representative and that person writes reports that can be used as if they're firsthand from any reporter that's a pool member. Mm-hmm. So when you go and you report, let's say at nine o'clock in the morning, this is actually not a really early, you know, early rising White House. And you you go in and you if the president has an event in the Oval Office or in the cabinet room in the Roosevelt Room, you can go in there. And uh, if, if if they let you in, a lot of these are closed for us and you can ask questions, shout questions, actually. And I used to I mean, you have to shout questions because you can't raise your hand. right? It doesn't work that way. So. Um, so then you, uh, I would go, you go in and you write reports. This is what was said. This was who, who was in the room. If there's some kind of color, do that until the end of the day. And this is actually sort of an, it's not that unusual for this White House to call, they, they call it calling a lid when, when the pool is done for the day, at least catching, having a chance to catch the president. And that would be five, six o'clock, something like that. Yeah. Uh, if there's a briefing, you don't have to write a report on the briefing because everybody can watch it. Whitehouse.gov live. And in, in you try to find out what's going on with the story of the day. Other reporters might ask you to find out something. The other thing that you do is you try to find out who's going to be on television, usually Fox News. Because let's say Larry Kudlow or Kellyanne Conway is on one of those shows. Then you stand around outside and you wait for them to walk back to the White House. And they often stop at the microphones. They're called the sticks and will take questions. So when you're looking to get information, uh, I mean, uh, I can go a while without seeing Stephanie Grisham, the press secretary these days. Uh, there, but you know, I deal with people in the, in other people in the press office. Um, uh, but that's basically, the way that you get information other than calling people uh, within the administration, trying to get answers. Um, so that's, that's what it is. Every white house story almost, you know, every day. Yes. Yeah. So every white house hates leakers and leaks, but uh, this administration has been known for being quite leaky. Um, are they, have they tightened things up? Cause Trump really, 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 really hates leaks. Yeah. Unless he does them, <laughs> you know, I mean, all administrations complain about leaks and all administrations leak. I think that there has been a more discipline and that there are a few, I mean, let's face it, it's sort of easy often to figure out who has been the leaker. Uh, and uh, there are some people who probably leak a lot or were still there, but uh, they, they, I mean, they've been getting rid of people. In fact, there was just, uh, I just read that um, uh, somebody from Homeland Security just got moved into NEA. I mean, they, they're, they're sort of, I think, really moving mid-level people uh, who, who are suspected of something uh, outside of the EEOB, the Executive Office Building. Okay. Well, if this were a normal week-to-week political roundtable, of course, we would be talking about the general current news, as well as I would have asked you quite a few questions about the uh presidential primary race. So let's actually get into some of that. On the Republican side, of course, foregone conclusion, we knew where that was going to end up. But on the Democratic side, what have, what have you thought watching this? I mean, was Bernie Sand did it surprise you that Bernie Sanders became the front runner for so long? Yeah, I was surprised by that. I mean, I, I, I was, I mean, just on an age issue, it's surprising that Bernie Sanders uh, did as well as he did. But I think it shows that the Democratic Party has moved further to the left and, and, and he, has committed followers and he he's played that. I mean, he's, he's gotten a lot out of it. I think he, I think he was a better candidate than I understood yep. in 2016. What about Joe Biden's comeback? Surprise? Boy, I, I just, well, I mean, no, because he seemed like the most viable Democrat, but boy, I, I, I have to say, if I'm a Democrat watching him. I'd just be shaking my head a lot. He just doesn't seem to have the energy. He seems like an old man. I mean, Trump's 
over 70 as well, but he has this energy that you don't see. And every day I, I'm, I'm really into watching Andrew Cuomo now in, in his press briefings. And for whatever reason, I, I just haven't caught as many as Gavin Newsom's. But if I'm a Democrat and I'm watching Andrew Cuomo uh, talk the way he does, I'm thinking, why do we have Joe Biden as our presumptive nominee? So uh, I, I just think he's going to and I think he's going to be very nervous about that. There are a number of interesting people in the race, of course, uh, Pete Buttigieg, Tulsi Gabbard, Marianne Williamson. Um, what were some of your favorite moments from the race, whether it was inspiring, ridiculous, uh, surprising? Well, of course, I mean, I really am into I, I, I'm I'm always paid more attention to, I'm in the Trump bubble, so I haven't watched as much. I think it was interesting to me that Pete Buttigieg did as well as he did. He's a really attractive candidate, so I understand that. Amy Klobuchar seemed a little ticked off that this young upstart uh, did better than she did. She's a member of the Senate. I I thought her reaction was interesting. I I was there for the Nevada debate and uh, got, got, uh, it, it was interesting to see Sort of the way, the way the way the debates moved, just how and, and how how quickly everything fizzled. Kamala Harris, I never thought that she would be a good presidential candidate, and was not surprised that she fizzled away. Tom Steyer, gee, no shock there. Californians didn't do so well. Yeah, we were talking about Joe Biden as as you're perceiving him as a kind of a, a weak, low energy candidate. Um, not not to steal the president's term for him, but um, what do you think the general election? campaign is going to be like. I mean, my prediction has been that it's going to be quite brutal. Do you think so? And what do you think the main issues will be that they'll be fighting about? Well, the coronavirus is going to be huge. And I think that, you know, one of the things that uh, Joe Biden's tried to do is really slam Trump for his handling of the coronavirus. But, you know, the polls show that people are pretty happy with Trump on the coronavirus. I mean, I I know that he got a, a lot of heat for saying on Fox News that he was hoping to open up the country on Easter. But, you know, a lot of people, that's what they want to hear. And and so I think that he's really played to the what people are thinking about this. On the one hand, we want to be safe. On the other hand, we wonder if maybe uh, maybe we don't have to uh, hunker down for months on end, as some people have suggested. Uh, and, and by the way, it, one of the interesting things to watch has been Cuomo and Trump, because they agree on a lot of things. They both are talking about they're looking ahead and they're looking about getting the economy going again. Um so I, I look at Biden and I know that Biden's going to be the guy who's presidential, but all he does to me is look old and tired and in the, in the fire that he needs, I, he's just not bringing it. So I, I just sort of see Trump just banging him over the head, sort of like he did with so many Republicans, like, you know, so many Republicans before. And uh, it just doesn't look like a fair fight. Um, if you, you're no longer with a Republican consultant firm, but say you were with a Democratic consultant firm, would you be advising Joe Biden to pick a certain, uh, vice presidential candidate who would, you know, what, what holes do you want that person to fill? Yeah. I mean, I think Amy Klobuchar would be good, but now I'm really thinking that Andrew Cuomo or Gavin Newsom would be smart choices because both of them have shown, you know, what, what the thing that, and let me talk for a second about Mike Pence, by the way, because Mike Pence, this has been his moment. Uh, how many times did you hear uh, people say, well, we don't want to impeach Trump because we get Pence for president? Pence is looking pretty good to those people right now. He's got a good demeanor. I think he comes across as thoughtful when he talks about fighting the coronavirus. He's got a great team behind him. This is his moment. And so if I'm competing against uh, Donald Trump, I want to have my own Mike Pence, maybe somebody younger, but somebody who knows all the, ch- and by the way, what another advantage, of course, for Mike Pence is he was the Indiana governor. Right. Governors know all about the moving parts and, and they're all about, you know, on the chessboard, knowing where to put what. And so I think Cuomo is, he's got to be thinking about Cuomo right now, although he might be upstaged and he's got to be thinking about Gavin Newsom for the same reason. The Gavin Newsom is somebody who really he's a wonk and he cares about those details that I just don't see Joe Biden particularly caring about. Interesting. President Trump's first press secretary, Sean Spicer, is now uh, showing up in the press briefing room. Uh, I believe he's a what is he a correspondent for Newsmax? Is that right? For Newsmax. That's right. He's been there. I've, I've seen him there once. 
Well, I mean, what do you think about that? Obviously, you've 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 done the consultant to journalism move. Um, some people have not liked. I mean, Bill Moyers got that criticism too, right? He was with President Johnson, and then he he became a journalist. Um, is that okay? Is is there are there any conflicts there that uh, you know there are some journalistic purists who would say you should never cross that line? Well, you know, Newsmax is a pretty out. I mean, Newsmax is a conservative news organ. It's not. It's not. It, it's not the Washington Post or the Las Vegas Review Journal. I'll leave it at that. I mean, I have been in journalism for for thirty years. So um, before, and that was after politics. But um, you know, I mean, Sean, it's it's a different. We're not the pure world we used to be, and there are a lot of people in journalism who have done other things. And I think, in certain ways, that's a good thing because they have a different kind of world experience. Sometimes yeah. journalists can be cloistered. Um, and is there any camaraderie between the, the White House correspondents? I mean, off hours? Are you heading to any of the zillions of bars that are around the White House? Um, yeah, I, there is a lot. I mean, I find uh, in the beginning, especially because it, it was so crowded, um, uh, I was named the prime minister of the Isle people, those of us who stood like in the sidelines and, <laughs> and uh, uh, the heady early days when we had no idea what to expect. But anyway, um, you know, the, uh, people are very friendly with each other. There's a lot of collegiality. Um, I don't, maybe there's more sniping than I realize because people aren't sniping at me. You know, we, in a way we have a common foe and that, and, and that is the white house because they don't want to share things all a lot. Sure. And everything that you get from that white house, you have to work for. Um, I want to get some questions here from the audience. Uh, one is, do you believe Trump will honor having the election and its results? <laughs> yes. You do? I do. No, no question about it. Another person- he may not want to. He may complain about it. Yeah. But when the movers come, he's going <laughs> Okay. Um, someone asks, uh, do you have to say nice things about the president to get into that press rotation in the press briefing room? It sounds what actually maybe let me ask that a little bit differently as well. That when you talked about having like every 11 days, is that a system set up by the press group themselves or does the White House say this is how it's going to be? It's the White House Correspondents Association that, that manages that. So you don't. And I think anybody who's watched a briefing knows that you don't have to say nice things in order to get into to get a seat. OK, that's pretty clear. Uh, someone writes, President Trump today released a letter about reducing shelter in place at a county or state level by three levels of concern based on reliable lab tests. Asking your thoughts on that, I, I guess it would sound like he, he's kind of pointing to testing as, as a more uh, accurate basis for when, you know, making these kinds of decisions. You know, I'm so glad you mentioned that. And I had the letter somewhere like on my table, my dining room table, which is now my office. But at any rate, so it's true. Donald Trump sent a letter to the America's governors today, and it said two things. One is he said that there was enhanced testing now, which is a shock to me because, by the way, I never got a coronavirus test. Coronavirus test. I they did they weren't able to give me one when I was in the emergency room, and uh, there are troubles in Virginia giving them that have had to do with having the right equipment to give them and other issues. And at this point in time, I figured, well, I'll leave it for someone else who needs it more. I'm, I'm, I'm getting uh, close to the end. But um, so, um, so he said that, that so he seems to be repeating the claim that there are a lot of tests and that's just not true. And he also said that the government would be rating counties by whether they are high, medium or low risk. And then they could give advice on whether or not they should uh, maintain, increase or relax their social distancing guidelines, which I just thought was surprising. Um, I, I was looking into that earlier today and, and we'll be interested to hear what the president says about that. It is briefing because let's, one of the things that's gone on as well is there's been a certain tension between the governors and, 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 the, and, the, and the White House. The, the, the White House says, hey, it's a local thing. You guys get to decide. And I think he's right about that. But then if that's true, why are you doing this? <laughs> Don't you think that the mayors and the governors know what's best for their people? So it was a really odd uh, letter, and I will be interested to learn more about it. What, what's your thoughts on why is he doing these daily press briefings on, on the coronavirus? 
because it seems in some ways, you know, these crises are usually where the president, it, that's where they really make their mark. And, and some people have said the best thing for him actually would be to say, listen to the experts. I'm in the White House doing important things and not putting his foot in his mouth. Or do you think he's actually, do you think people are wanting to hear what he's having to say and that he's actually, you know, the, the pundits are wrong? He, they're overreacting to him. Well, he can't give rallies now because that's crowded room, right? And he does like to talk and he likes to get attention and he likes to get as much attention as possible. Um, so I think, and, and of course, he's, he's, he's up in the polls since the coronavirus started. And as you know, poll numbers are very important to him. So you add it all up and that's why you're going to be seeing him probably on a daily basis for a while. And he can't go play golf now. <laughs> what sort of personal interaction have you had with him? How many times have you met him? Have you ever interviewed him one-on-one? -on -one? I have interviewed him in small groups twice. And I find him more thoughtful and engaging in that setting than I do in a big room. Definitely. And I'd love to have a one-on-one -on -one and we'll see if that happens. And how does that work? Do you, do you have to put in a request for those? And Like all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you have to get used to rejection, but I mean, I've been, I've been working on it. Um, I, I, I proposed it. I would like to have it happen. I've been uh, in with in with uh, regional reporters before. Sometimes they set that up. You know, of course, this year at the like they often do end of the year interviews. I ask for those every year, um, it, but of course, this year it was around impeachment, and the president wasn't giving as many interviews. And he has different, you know, theories. He, he seems to change his mind about what he likes in terms of interviews. So we'll see what happens. I mean, I, I would just be thinking if I were in his press office, I would be thinking, okay, here's a, an independent journalist, a conservative. It's going to be a conversation that he probably will will look forward to more than being grilled by Wolf Blitzer. Yeah, he likes big name. He likes TV. So there, there are like when we think of the George Stephanopoulos interview, yeah. it was a big problem. And he likes big names. You know, um, I can only say perhaps they want to have only favorable treatment and they don't want to take certain kinds of questions. Maybe, maybe the, I mean, there are, maybe they want someone to interview him who will not press him on certain things. I don't know. I, I mentioned earlier, you, you, you can be very independent on, on your, your views. I mean, I remember you surprising folks around here uh, talking about decriminalization of marijuana and other things. How do you define your, your politics? I mean, obviously in conservatives, there are a broad array of, you know, economic conservatives, religious conservatives, libertarian conservatives, populists. I mean, give us some sense if you would. Were you always a conservative or did, was this something that evolved later in your life or mid, how did that happen? I, I do, I, I want to get back to interviewing Trump for one second. I think I write a great story with an interview from him and there are things I'd like to know about what makes him think that would make for a great piece. So if anybody from the White House is watching this, I want you to keep that in mind, that it would be illuminating. And I'm certainly not out to ask gotcha questions. I mean, I, I really want to be more thoughtful than that. You look at I'm a conservative. Um, I, a conservative believes in less government, which is one of the reasons why I was against, uh, why, why I wrote so much about federal mandatory minimums. And yes, I still believe that marijuana should be legal. And... Um, you know, I, I, I believe the, gov the government does best when it does less and does less better and works on doing less better than doing too many things. So that's it. And have you always, has that, has that always been your politics? Uh, I guess. I mean, certainly since I was uh, like 30, something like that. Yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I guess in my late twenties, I started. So when I was at, I worked as a secretary when I worked my way through school and I worked for the state of Massachusetts and there was this thing, Boston Globe had this thing called the Globe Spotlight. And the Globe Spotlight would basically look at who left work early and, and who didn't show up. And every time the Globe Spotlight was reporting, I, could, uh, I couldn't get in an elevator for 10 tries. And the minute the team stopped reporting, I could just press a button at 5 o'clock and get out. And I think that had, that had something to do with turning my politics, as a matter of fact. I'd forgotten all about that. <laughs> Well, so since you, what, when exactly did you arrive in Washington? What was that before Trump's admin, um, inauguration or after it? 
I arrived in Washington January 2nd, 2017. So, so shortly before, before the inauguration, I was there for the inauguration. It was a grim ceremony. And can I just say something, John, about like I, the hard thing for me is I am very split about Donald Trump. There are things he does that I love. I love the judges he's picked. I think he's, he's handled the coronavirus pretty well. Uh, there are certain things he does great. And there are certain things that I don't like about Donald Trump. I don't like the way he treats people. I don't like the, t- the tweets. And I wish that he had more presidential demeanor. But I envy people who hate him or love him because it's so much easier picking a side. And as a reporter, I have to work, you know, really work hard, too. And, and keeping opinion. there are times when I have opinions and I've got to put them back because it's my job to tell people this is what's happening. And that's what I work to do. Uh, but it's, he's a very polarizing figure. And, and there aren't a lot of people who sort of feel that there are days when they like him and there are days that they don't. And, and I'm in that unfortunate position. Yeah, because when, whenever I hear people talking about the polls, there's just so much of it that's baked in on both sides that, you know, something big will happen. And we'll get questions from the audience saying, oh, well, this finally, you know, make his base dislike him or will this, you know, make Democratic support crumble or whatever. And it it changes very little because they're, it's so baked in, so solid already how people feel about him. So there's been a lot of talk about just how much the Republican Party has become Trump's party. Um and I want to ask you kind of what you think will come after Trump, whether he wins re-election or say he doesn't, either way, you know, in four years or in eight years, who are some of the next wave of possible Republican leaders and where do you think they would take the party? I think governors are people who might be in a better position to uh, become national figures because they haven't been... They haven't been sort of pushed through the, the Trump tunnel. You know, I mean, basically everything, everything is about Trump now. He's making sure coronavirus is about Trump now. And I mean, if there's an issue, I'll, I'll, get, I'll give you a great issue, the federal deficit. That's a huge issue, right? But it's not about Trump. So people don't care. It's, it's like people, people really aren't focused on, on the federal deficit. And it's huge. And it's gotten huger with coronavirus. Um, so I think that to the extent that people can be looked at differently, that, it, that they can be independent of him without having to distance themselves, per se, from him, that's where you're going to see more leadership. I mean, you know, Marco Rubio is somebody who's tr- sort of balanced things a little bit. Mitt Romney, of course, has stood up to Trump, but after endorsing Trump, too. So um, I, I, think, I, I think that those Republicans who haven't had to work with Trump a lot, we'll, we'll do better. What do you think about Nikki Haley? Nikki Haley is the perfect balance, isn't she? She's somebody who showed that she could work with Trump and she could be a team player. Uh, but she's also someone who said uh, when she disagrees with him and she's done it without, without, she's done it like a lady, right? She has, she's done it. She's done it well. And I think, I think that if there's somebody who I think would be likely to follow after Trump, it would be Nikki Haley. What do you think Mike Pence's future is like? Well, Mike Pence's future has been uh, helped by the coronavirus because I think people have seen him as steady presence. And I think that uh, he's probably looking at 2024. Uh, And obviously, Trump has to win 2020 for that to be more viable for him. um, But I think he's I think he's shown that 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 he has a. A presence that is, I think people like seeing him. I think they like the way he talks, the, the fact that there, there isn't a lot of ego in Mike Pence. I think um, maybe people will be ready for a bit really. I, the question is, after Trump, will the Republican Party want to go totally anti-Trump or will it, or will it try to look for another Trump? And I don't know. I have no idea. Well, when we talk about kind of this polarization of the country, and we've seen it in so many different ways of cities being so separated from, you know, uh, rural areas and, you know, the, the red-blue split becoming even more baked in, um, you, you just increasingly are coming across people who have no friends who think, you know, 
some people on the left who have no friends who are opposed to abortion, people on the right who have no friends who are whatever, outwardly gay or whatever. Um, you have friends, and you, you've long had friends across the aisle politically. Um, one I want to ask you about was Ralph Nader. <laughs> How did that come about? Oh, you know, I ran into Ralph oh, oh over a year ago, and and uh, I was with my my uh, coworker uh, Gary Martin, who covers the Hill, and and Ralph looked at me and he said, "Trump hasn't called on you yet," and and Gary was like shocked. <laughs> My husband, Wesley Smith, has wrote, written a number of books with Ralph Nader. And um, Ralph is somebody uh, I've had lunch with his mother and I've known, you know, known different family members. And it, it, he's it, he's an amazing man. He just, as you know, I I uh, I interviewed him at the Commonwealth Club. That's right. And that was just so much fun. I really enjoyed that. But I mean, uh, do you talk politics when you're with him or is it just? So, so, okay, so I don't see Ralph a whole lot. That's the last time I saw Ralph in person. I think we're we tread gingerly at times <laughs> on certain things. Yeah. Um, you know, we have a we have a different point of view, but I I certainly respect the fact that Ralph has core values that he holds on to no matter what. And I think that's what a lot of people respect about Ralph that what, what Ralph thinks Ralph thinks, and he's not going to just go like, oh, I don't care about that anymore. It's not Ralph Nader. Yeah. He's a great man. Well, I, I I love hearing stories like that and as well as seeing things like that because I think people who only have very homogenous friendship circles are really missing out on a lot, um, both what they learn about them and about themselves too. So, um, Okay, I've got to ask. Actually, I meant this is kind of where I was going before when I was talking about the t- how long you've been now covering the, the White House. What have been your favorite stories, the ones where you just could not wait to get back from the briefing room or back from the offsite and, and start writing up? I mean – you really just wanted to jump into them. Well, can I tell you my favorite day in the White House? Sure. My favorite day in the White House was when a flag football team from Las Vegas was invited for this sporting event. And one of the things that had bothered me about this Trump White House is that it fe- I felt like they didn't really enjoy it. Sarah Sanders was the press secretary at the time. And you'd see them. Uh, in fact, I've been to one media Christmas party. That's the only one Trump gave. And I'd been to a number of them when George W. Bush was president and the Bush people were so gracious. And the president and first lady for all of these until Trump would stand in a room and you would line up and get your picture taken with them. And it was just a great experience for me. I loved it. When Trump had a Christmas party, he came out in a roped area, talked for 10 minutes and left. And the staff, you know, they just weren't now, of course, I w- I'm at the White House every day. We're, when Bush was president, I'm in San Francisco, and all the, all the Bush people read me, and they made a real point of being nice to me. Um, whereas this is very different. We'll just leave it that, at that. <laughs> so so I, I remember thinking, I mean, I just don't know. Uh, I remember thinking that they don't really enjoy it. And when I went to this flag football uh, event, and it was all teams from all over the country, and I saw people from the administration, the president came up to the kids and he's talking to them and he's talking to the families and Sarah Sanders and Alex Azar, the uh, HHS secretary, and all of these people just having fun. I saw them enjoy the White House in a way I had never seen before. And that's my absolute favorite day. Um, I just loved every minute of that. Yeah, there have been stories. I'll never forget all oh, the first press. So the first press conference with Trump that I covered was in New York. And it was when that, um, when the, when the, dossier came out. And I went up to Trump Tower and covered that. But the first White House press conference in the East Room, I remember sitting there and thinking, I can't believe this is happening. And the only thing that had ever been close was one, like for this incredible press conference where he's calling on people. And I unfortunately didn't get called on. But, you know, we saw some, we saw, um, you know, he was so combative and engaged. And the only thing I could think that came close to it was when Gavin Newsom had a press conference in city hall where he admitted that he'd been involved with his campaign manager's wife. And we watched and he said, everything you've heard, it's all true. And Whoa. You know, because let's face it, we often know what we're going to see. And with Trump, especially in the beginning, we had no idea what would happen next. And I remember Alexis Simmendinger from Real Clear Politics wrote, one thing is clear, he's going to do this again. And of course, it was a long time actually after that, before (laughs) Trump did another East Room press conference. So 
he is somebody who you may think you know, but you may not know him. I'm going to take a cough drop. I hope that's not annoying, but it's less annoying than watching my nose run. You were, you were telling me before we got started here about the importance of having a cough drop in the White House. Why don't you tell her? I always carry, I always have a bag of cough drops with me because if you want to get called on, you don't want to be stuffy and coughing. And, uh, it's so anyway, yes. Uh, um, and if you don't want to sneeze, take a cough drop, by the way, I've, I've learned all about it. <laughs> okay. Well, before we wind up, besides reading you, following you at the Las Vegas, uh, review journal and, uh, online on Twitter, what are some other good, uh, political reporters and, and, and such that you might recommend people to follow to get a, a good broad sense of, you know, insight into national politics? Well, I think Peter Baker from the New York Times is the gold standard. I mean, I just think he's amazing. He's just a great reporter. Um, Rob Crilly from the Washington Examiner uh, is is excellent. Um, I mean, it's funny. The way we end up reading each other's stuff is interesting because it's you end up following following people on Twitter more. Um, Maggie Haberman is, I think, the reporter who's most inside Trump's head and has that availability. I... I wish I, I know that when this is over, I'm going to let kick myself for not having, been, <laughs> but um, it's, it's a, it's a difficult white house to cover. And the thing that is one of the things that's difficult about it is when you try to get answers to questions, there are people who don't want to, I mean, people are always afraid that they're going to be second guessed by Trump and they're never sure when Trump is going to turn around and change his mind. And so to the extent that you can get beyond that, that's good. I think, um, I mean, Javers from CNBC is like a great reporter. He asks great questions. Um, the RCP people, Phil Wegman and Susan Crabtree, they just they do a great job of get uh, of they, they write great stories. Um, anyway, mm-hmm. well, then one last question: You now live in the Washington D.C. area. You going to stay there? Yeah, I like it here. This is this has been a nice change. Um, I'm near my family for the first time in decades, which I enjoy. And I like living in Washington. It's, um, well, I mean, I remember going house hunting and thinking, we can afford this? I mean, <laughs> California, right? You know, we'd go to Yellowstone and think, oh, the gas here is so cheap, right? <laughs> Everyone else is grumbling. So it's, um, it's, it's really livable. And the Bay Area is so congested. I mean, it's just work to get around in a way that Washington isn't. So, yeah, I think I am. Well, very good. Well, on that note, thank you, Deborah J. Saunders, for joining us here and taking time to speak with us. You can follow Deborah at Deborah J. Saunders on Twitter. Thank you to our audience, and we look forward to having you join us for more online programs and, of course, having you here in person when we resume on-site programming. So have a great rest of your week. Thanks, John. Thank you very much. You take care. You too. Sorry about the... It's not coronavirus. (laughs) Okay. Talk to you later. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.